All right, so far in the book of Hebrews, the writer has gone to great lengths to prove that, you know, Jesus is superior to the angels and the, therefore the message that he brings has more importance than the message brought by the angels. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, which is where we are, he continues talking about how much greater Jesus is than the angels. And he, and he makes a statement. He says, now it was not to the angels that, G that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, the Jewish Christians would have known this. They would have known that the Messiah was to rule the world. That's one of the great big promises. Is that's why when Jesus came and he rode in on the donkey, all the people were saying, hooray, hooray, hooray. The king has finally come. The Jews are finally going to take over the world. That's what they thought was happening. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, you know, he's just reminding them that the angels weren't the ones that were going to rule the world. It was the Messiah. And we, that's predicted in lots of places in the Old Testament, but one of them is in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel had just woken up from this really awful dream that had four monsters in it. And, and he, was re, he was talking about this dream, and he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, who is God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is just one of many places in the Old Testament that talks about this, but there is not one single place anywhere in Scripture that says that angels are going to have an everlasting dominion and rule the world. It just isn't there. And the Jews knew this. Uh, and, but, you know, this writer of Hebrews, he's very methodical, very meticulous. He's going to make sure that they understand that he's speaking to them from the Old Testament scripture that they recognize. So he gives them a quote. He says, here's, here's the examples in, in verse 6 through 8. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Well, that's a quote from Psalm 8. And Psalm 8, verse 1 through, 1 through 9, is a psalm that the writer of Hebrews is, here, is saying here is a messianic psalm. Okay, so let's go look at it. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, 
think about this. We tend to just skim right over that little psalm. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing these early Christians to it and saying, you know what, we need to unpack that psalm a little bit. Because look at it. It says in verse 4, it has two different phrases. It says, what is man that you are mindful of him and son of man that you care for him? Son of man is the title that Jesus gave himself most often. If you go through the New Testament, most of the time when Jesus referred to himself, he called himself son of man as a title. This is a place in the psalm that the writer of Hebrews is pointing out as a messianic transition. He's saying, what is man that you're mindful of him? And then he goes on and the whole last half of this psalm is talking about the Messiah, the son of man that you care for him. And the, you know, you can tell if you really think about it, that it can't be talking about man, us type man, because look at it. Are we crowned with glory and honor yet? No, it hadn't happened yet. Jesus is after his resurrection, but we're not. Do we have dominion of everything in the whole world, all of the animals and stuff? Well, we used to before Adam sinned, remember? But after Adam sinned, that dominion kind of evaporated. If you think about it, every time we try to fix something, we screw it up in the ecology, don't we? <laughs> we, we can't seem to do any of it right. Everything we do messes it up. So when, when the writer of Hebrews is pointing this out and saying, you know, if you don't think of the whole last half of this as being the Messiah, then you can't make sense of this psalm. It doesn't make sense unless it's the Messiah. And that's exactly his point. And he says, you know, a little, he goes on in his argument in verses 8 and 9. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is to Jesus now, to the Messiah, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So not only is everything not in subjection to us, it's not in subjection to Jesus right now, is it? There's a great deal of evil in the world that, is, that God is allowing to operate. doesn't mean he can't bring it into subjection. It means that the time has not come yet to bring it into subjection. And that's, you know, that, that may seem hard to swallow, but it's in Revelation, it's very clear. It talks about that in this end time is when, after Jesus comes the second time, is when all of his enemies are going to be brought into subjection to him and placed as his footstool. And that isn't going to happen, hasn't happened yet, and it isn't happening till the very end. So the writer of Hebrews says, you know, be, be honest here. You do not see everything in subjection to him. But we do see him who for a little while, and notice it's a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he's saying that Jesus, of course, started out as deity and he, you know, he always has the personhood of deity. But in coming to earth and becoming incarnate, he voluntarily made himself lower than the angels. Why did he do that? Well, it says he was made lower than the angels for the purpose of tasting death for everyone. You see, Jesus could have become incarnate and been made man and just died a normal death. 
just like anybody else. It's only by the grace of God that his death has meaning. You know, it's, it's not the physical act that made it meaningful. It's God's love that made it meaningful. It's the grace of God that made it meaningful. And there's a shadow of that same grace in the Old Covenant. Leviticus 16 talks about the annual ritual of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it includes several rituals. It includes a ritual for atonement of the high priest. It includes a, this one day has a ritual of atonement for the tent of meeting, a ritual of atonement for the altar, a ritual of atonement for the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and finally, a ritual of atonement for the people. Now, does, has it ever struck you as strange that there would have to be an atonement for an inanimate object? Think about it. Why would the tent have to be atoned for? Why would the mercy seat, the holiest place in the tent, have to be atoned for? Well, look at Leviticus 16, verse 16 through 19. Thus, this is, you know, talking about how, how you actually make atonement. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. And he shall cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel." You see, the earthly dwelling place of God has been made unclean because it was in the midst of an unclean and sinful people. And that's what atonement means. It is the process of taking something unclean and making it clean. That's all it is. Look at uh, Leviticus 16, verse 29 and 30. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work whether native-born or foreigner residing among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from your sins. Well, notice, just like the inanimate object could do absolutely nothing to cleanse itself, the people can do nothing to cleanse themselves. This is something that God does for us. The only thing the people can do is believe and accept God's free gift. It's only by the grace of God that the Israelites were cleansed and atoned for in the Old Testament, and it's only by the grace of God that we're cleansed and atoned for in the New Testament. Back in the Old Testament days, the high priest would bring two goats to the entrance of the tabernacle and cast lots over them, basically drawing straws, okay? And one lot would have the Lord's name on it. And so the, the goat that was the Lord's was immediately slaughtered. It was sacrificed. It was to belong solely to the Lord. For no other purpose was it to live. And that's a very common um, way of making things holy in the Old Testament was to utterly destroy it. There's even a, a, a location in the Old Testament called Horma, the name of which means being utterly destroyed and made whole, and in that way being made holy to the Lord. The first goat goes to the Lord and the Lord alone, alone, and its blood was what was used to make atonement for the Holy of Holies. 
Its blood was what was sprinkled on, on, the, on the mercy seat to cleanse it, to atone for it. The second goat was a scapegoat. Look at verses 21 through 22 in Leviticus 16. The high priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Obviously, this ritual was set up by God to give us a visual picture of the spiritual reality. Because obviously, a goat is a goat, <laughs> right? And there's no way the sins could actually be on the head of the goat, except in a spiritual sense. God is giving us a picture of what's really happening. The reality is... God is taking our sins away, far, far away from us. The Hebrews understood this. Therefore, they completely understood the writer of Hebrews when he said that Jesus tasted death for all of us by the grace of God. In Jesus, the function of the two goats was combined once and for all. He was utterly destroyed, given over to the Lord, just like the first goat. And his death was what was required to make the dwelling place of God among men holy. Where does he dwell now? In our hearts, right? His death was, was what cleansed that, cleansed those hearts. And as we know, God dwells within us, and his death made our hearts holy to the Lord. He made it possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. He also fulfilled the function of the scapegoat. He took all our sins on his head, all our wickedness and rebellion, and took them to such a remote place that Psalm 103 says, He took them as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Did we do anything in all of this? No. God in his mercy and grace, solely because of his great love for us, just made it happen. He cleansed us so we could be reconciled to him forever. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this makes perfect sense. God's plan is beautiful to contemplate in its rightness and simplicity. Look at Hebrews 2 verse 10. It was only right that God who creates and preserves all things should make Jesus perfect through suffering in order to bring many children to share in his glory. For Jesus is the one who leads them to salvation. Now wait a minute. I thought Jesus was already perfect. Why did he be, need to be made perfect through suffering? As deity, he was already perfect. And as man, he was sinless, right? Our very, that's our conception of what perfect is. Well, there's a couple of ways to understand this. In the Old Testament context that we just discussed, being made perfect through suffering might be another way of saying Jesus was utterly destroyed, just like that first goat, Right? made holy in the sense of being given entirely over to the Lord as a sacrifice. But I think the writer of Hebrews is introducing a deeper dimension here. It's a dimension of kinship and understanding. He's pointing out why our Savior needed to be Jesus and not just another goat. Our once and for all Savior needed to be made the perfect vessel to understand us, to reach us, to save us, and to bring us with him into glory and honor. And for this, he needed to truly understand our suffering. He needed to understand completely how difficult our life is, how difficult obedience is, how weak we are, and how easily we fall prey to sin. In short, our Savior needed to become one of us. Hebrews 2.11 
He purifies people from their sins, and both he and those who are made pure all have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his family. He says to God, I will tell my people what you have done. I will praise you in their meeting. Well, of course, the writer of Hebrews is going to back that statement up with Scripture, with Old Testament. The, the quote in there in verse 12 is a quote from Psalm 22. And we need to go back and see that that was a psalm about Jesus. And this one's easy. You're going to recognize this one right away. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? These are the very words that Jesus spoke on the cross when he died. When Jesus died, he wasn't just saying those few words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had in his heart the whole Psalm 22. He was feeling Psalm 22. He was praying Psalm 22. Look what Psalm 22 says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you even in my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Roaring lions tear their prey, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength has dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And look what the very last line is. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. He was doing it all for us. And Jesus considered us, his brothers, his family. You know, if, if ever there was a messianic psalm, that's it, right? Look, he gives another messianic quote in verse 13. He says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. These are from Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. I want to back up to Isaiah verse 13, though, so you can see that it is a messianic psalm. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he's talking about Judah and Israel here. 
He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. For the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Now, verse 14, of course, is referring to the stumbling stone that caused many, causes many in Israel to fall. And that one verse is quoted several times in the New Testament in reference to Jesus specifically. The, as the Messiah rejected by Israel. In fact, when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus into the temple to be circumcised, remember the prophet Simeon that met them and said, oh, finally I can die in peace because my eyes have seen the Messiah and God promised I would see the Messiah before I died. He quoted this verse exactly. This was the passage in Isaiah that Simon, Simeon quoted to Mary and Joseph. And Isaiah goes on to say, bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I, the children the Lord has given me. We are the signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. And that's the, that little part about here am I and the children the Lord has given me is what the writer in Hebrews was quoting. And it says in verse 16, the, the Isaiah says, bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. That would be a very mysterious statement to a Jew because testimony is another word for law, the law. So here Isaiah is saying, bind up the law and seal up the law among my disciples. Well, the word disciples isn't used in the Old Testament hardly ever. Okay, that's a New Testament word. Right? So right here, what did Jesus come to do? He came to fulfill the law. Okay? It's talking about this whole part of, of Isaiah is talking about the Messiah. So the, the writer, so we can be comfortable, this is a messianic prophecy, and that when in verse 18, 17 and 18, whoever is saying I is Jesus, it's the Messiah. He's saying, I will put my trust in him. Here am I. Jesus, and the children the Lord has given me. So the writer of Hebrews' point is that Jesus became our earthly family and that he had to become human to become our Savior. So go on to Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That would be Satan, right? That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He became human so he could take on our death. As deity, he couldn't have done this, right? Because he lives forever as God. It was only as a fully human man that he could die and take our sins on himself. And in that way, he destroyed Satan's power over us and freed us from the fear of death. That's an important word. He's going to free us from death entirely at the end, the Bible says that death is the last enemy that will be conquered. But right now, we are free from the fear of death. Satan can no longer, he can threaten us with death. He can't, he can't threaten us with a permanent spiritual death because we've been given the free gift of eternal life. There's an old Celtic prayer that quotes Psalm 91 that says, His faithful promises are your armor. You need no longer be afraid of any terror by night or the death arrow that flies by day. Now, it doesn't say you can't be killed by the death arrow, right? It just says you don't need to fear it, all right? 
because all it can do is harm this shadow that we're living in now. It, it cannot cause you any kind of damage to your spirit. Satan can make us suffer. He can hurt us, but he cannot kill us. True death, which is called in Revelation the second death, is reserved for Satan and his followers. It's not meant for us. Look at Revelation 20, verse 10 through 15. This is where you know that God didn't intend hell for men. He intended it for Satan. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and everyone was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. All whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. So, you know, right there you can see the devil, the beast, the false prophet, death and Hades are all thrown in the lake of fire. They're named. They're thrown in the lake of fire. Other than that, it's those whose names were not found written in the book of life. Now, lest we be confused as, as to who that might be, a little bit later, the writer of Revelation, St. John, explained it in very explicit terms. Look at Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in that lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Contrast that with the words of Jesus in John 5:24. What I'm about to tell you is true. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be found guilty. He has crossed over from death to life. So even though I could find myself in several places in Revelation 21:8. <laughs> In that list, that name, that Gail Evers was right in there amongst them. Jesus said, because I believe in him, I will not be found guilty. That's a very great gift. Satan cannot kill us. He can only deceive us. He can only try. Yes, ma'am. Can I just ask? Sure. Does that mean people who um, fall into these categories that we traditionally think of as um, being those kind of people, not not just something in your you know lust or something right. in your in your your being, but something you do that's actually something? Um, they too have, if they believe, how could they be doing those things if they believe? The question is. The, yeah, the question is, well, in, in the verse in Revelation 21.8 where it lists all these evil people, does that mean that if they believe and they're doing all these evil things that they're not going to be found guilty of all these evil things, you know, and go to hell, basically? And, and 
we're going to talk a, a great deal about this in the next lesson, but there's, I have two answers to this. Number one, I'm thankful that Jesus is doing the judging <laughs> okay. and that he's a merciful God. I think scripture is very clear that it matters how you live your life. And I remember when I was agonizing at one point over whether I would go to hell if I got a divorce. And I had always been taught that I would, that I was, I was an adulterer, therefore I would go to hell. And I read in the New Testament where it said, it has, Paul has like a list very similar to this of really awful, terrible, you know, liars and cheats and sexually immoral people and all this stuff. And, and then there's another list. And that other list is people whose fruit is peace, patience, kindness, self-control. And I laid those two scriptures side by side and I said, well, which one do I fall into? <laughs> well, even as sinful as I was, I knew which category I, I fell into, you know. And that's because I knew that the Spirit of God was living in me and producing fruit. I could see the fruit it was producing. So the answer, I believe, is that you cannot look from the outside and pick out a particular action that a person does and say, you're going to hell because you got a divorce or you're going to hell because you told a lie yesterday, you know. But what matters is the spirit living inside that person. And Jesus said that you will produce fruit according to the spirit that lives in you. Okay. So if there is an evil spirit living in you, you will produce evil fruit. Okay. The, the logic doesn't work necessarily the other direction. Just because you see a little piece of evil fruit dangling doesn't mean the whole tree is rotten, right? Okay. So that's how I look at at this and I think that certainly even someone who is evil to the core you know is not is actively rejecting Christ and producing evil fruit I do of course believe that the door of salvation is open to them if they will repent but repent is a big word isn't it okay did that answer the question okay Satan cannot kill us. He can only deceive us. He can only try to draw us into following him instead of Jesus. He can try to get us to renounce our gift of salvation. He can't take it away from us, but he can try to get us to let go of it. Satan wins if he can get us to doubt God and give up hoping in our great future. This wavering, this falling away is exactly what the Hebrews was doing. That's why the book of Hebrews was written. Because these Christians were in danger of walking away from their salvation, of ignoring the message. The writer of Hebrews is pleading with them and trying to show them the danger of their apathy. And really, that's our danger nowadays to a great degree is apathy. The opening verses of the chapter set that out clearly. If you remember back to verse 3, it says, How will we escape if we don't pay attention to God's great salvation? You see, he's proven that the message of our salvation brought by Jesus is much greater than the message of the law brought by the angels. And now at the very end of the chapter, the writer brings it full circle. 
In verse 16, he says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, obviously the offspring of Abraham includes the Jews and the Jewish Christians. What about us? What about the Gentiles? Does it include those of us not descended from Abraham in a physical sense? Well, Paul says it does. Look at Romans 4, 9 through 12. Are these blessings meant for circumcised people or for those who are not circumcised? Well, the scriptures say that God accepted Abraham because Abraham had faith in him. Remember, the, he's talking about that famous verse when it was reckoned unto Abraham as righteousness. Remember that? Because he had faith. Well, when did this happen? Paul says, was it before or after Abraham was circumcised? Well, actually, that happened before he was circumcised. Abraham let himself be circumcised to show that he had been accepted because of his faith, even before he was circumcised. This makes Abraham the father of all who are acceptable to God because of their faith, even though they are not circumcised. This also makes Abraham the father of everyone who is circumcised and has faith in God as Abraham did before he was circumcised. And if you think about it, the blessing to Abraham was that he would, he would be the father of many nations. Remember that? Well, nation, it wasn't nation. It was nations. It was all of us. It wasn't just the Jews. It was Jews and Gentiles. So the message of the writer of Hebrews is a message to us. Whether we're born Gentiles or Jews, whether we're modern day Christians or first century believers, the coming of Jesus was not a gift to the angels, but a gift to us. His message of salvation was not to the angels, but to us. And the final closing verses of chapter two, he had to be one of us so that he could serve God as our merciful and faithful high priest and sacrifice himself for the forgiveness of sins, our sins. And now that Jesus has suffered and was tempted, he can help anyone else who is tempted. The great good news is that Jesus persevered to the end. He overcame temptation and he gives that gift to us. He overcame death and he gives that gift to us. He obtained forgiveness for our sins and he gives that gift to us. As our faithful high priest, he represents us before God, always interceding on our behalf. If, don't you know how good it feels when you know somebody's praying for you today? You know, I wear a little, little prayer box here. And every morning I pick a slip out, random out of a bunch of slips. And whoever that is, I pray for that person all day. And sometimes people will call me and say, you know, I've been, I've been praying for you. And it just, you can just almost feel the lift. But... Each of us has somebody special praying for us every day, and that is Jesus. Every day he intercedes for you. We, the sinful and the voiceless, have been made saints and given a song to sing in the presence of God. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says in the first verse of chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So first off the bat, I want to point out to you that he's talking to holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. This is important. You'll find a lot of teachers dance all over the place in this chapter of Hebrews saying, well, in three sentences, he's talking about the believers. And in the next two sentences, he's not talking about the believers. And in the next three sentences, he's talking about the believers. I don't think that. I think this whole book is to believers, true 
believers that were really saved, okay? But they're in danger of letting go. So the writer of Hebrews says, okay, let's think about Jesus for a little while. For surely it is not angels he helps. We got through all that. He considered Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Okay, first off, we acknowledge Jesus as our apostle. Apostle simply means as one who was sent, and Jesus was sent to us, so he is our apostle. And we acknowledge him as our high priest. A high priest is one who cleansed our sins and now intercedes for us. That is his function. Okay. Again, this can't be setting out any clearer than these Hebrews were true, believing, saved Christians. This verse then, verse 2, says that Jesus was faithful to fulfill the mission God sent him on, just as Moses was faithful, quote, in all God's house. Now, that's kind of a strange way to put it, but it was intentional, and the writer goes on to explain what he meant by saying it that way. In verse 3, he says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Get out handout three. Because that whole little passage is like circular. Okay. So I laid it out in handout three so you can understand what the writer of Hebrews was saying and why it was important. If you look in handout three, verse three, four, five, and six, I've laid out each piece and said what he says at the beginning, Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, is the statement. That's the conclusion he's trying to get to. That's his premise, okay? And he's fixing to try to prove it. So he gives examples and arguments, okay? So the first example he gives is just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. That's an example. Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. That's an argument. He gives him an, old, an argument that's an Old Testament quote. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Then he gives another argument that Moses bore witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. And his last argument is that Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. So in handout three, I've laid out kind of in, in our version of English what he's saying. Logically, he's saying, number one, is it true that the builder of a house should have more honor than the house itself? Yes or no? Not a trick question. Is it true that the builder of a house should have more honor than the house itself? Yes, absolutely. The architect is greater than the house, right? Absolutely. That's a yes. Okay. Number two, aren't houses built by men? Yes. But isn't everything in the heavens and the earth created, quote, built by God? Yes. Therefore, one who is the son of God, who is heir and owner of the house of God, would be greater than one who is a servant in that house, right? Yes. Now, he doesn't spell that out in these verses. That's the implication of his three arguments, okay? Okay, then, who was the servant in God's house in this statement? Who was the servant? Moses. Right. 
Moses. And then he gives the quote. Look at, look at the numbers 12, 6 through 8 is where this quote comes from. Listen to my words. When there are prophets of the Lord among you, I reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. This is the Lord's talking. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. All right, now the next, the next thing is what did Moses bear witness to? The answer to that is in Scripture. So before you answer that, let's look at the Scriptures. First in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The Lord your God, this is Moses talking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and this is the Lord talking, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So who's the prophet that they're prophesying about? Jesus, the Messiah, okay? So Moses bore witness that the Messiah would come, the Lord confirmed it in verses 18 and 19. And then if you look in the New Testament, you'll see when Jesus came, this, this whole question came up. John 7, 40 through 43. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. And others said, no, he's the Messiah. And still others asked, well, if that's the case, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And thus the people were divided about whether Jesus was the prophet or the Messiah. Of course, we know he's both of them. John 5, 45 and 46. Jesus is speaking here. But do not think I will accuse, that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. And in Luke 24, this is after Jesus was resurrected. This is on the road to Emmaus. Jesus meets some of the disciples, and this is right after he was killed. And, and they are so dejected, and they're talking to each other about all the horrible things that have happened. Jesus is walking alongside of them, and they don't recognize him. And here's what he said. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Okay. So Jesus said that the Moses, the prophets, and all the Old Testament prophesied about him. Moses said that the Messiah would be raised up as a prophet among God's people. So the answer to number six is, what did Moses bear witness to? The Messiah. Okay, He bore witness to Jesus. Now, 
this is a big deal. And this is the reason the writer is going to all this trouble. Because you remember how the Hebrews revered Moses? And rightfully so, right? But they're in danger of throwing away Jesus and clinging instead to Moses. The writer has to somehow get them to understand how much greater Jesus is than Moses. But he has to do it delicately. Because if he offends them, they're going to stop listening. It's just like any other speaker, <laughs> you know. They're just going to stop listening. And he really wants them to understand how important this is. So he's being very, very careful. So back in number four, where he was talking about the servant and who is the servant and the servant being Moses, he didn't use just any old word for servant. The normal word in Greek for servant is doulos. That's the word that's used most of the time. But he used a special word in relation to Moses. He used the word therapon which is the word that God used in the passage we read about Moses, where God said, I speak to him face to face. In that passage, God called Moses his servant, faithful in all his house. He used the word thereupon. That word was a word used in the Greek for a cherished, honored, trusted servant. It's the word used in the Septuagint to describe angels and prophets, and in just classical Greek, it's the word used to describe the relationship of a physician with his patient. The physician being the servant of the patient. You see how honored that word is. So he's being very, very careful in what he's saying about Moses because it's something that is really important. He brings up this whole bit about, you know, Moses prophesying about the Messiah. Well, Moses also bore witness to Christ, not just in the words that he spoke about the prophet being raised from, from the people of Israel, but he also was a picture of the Messiah. Think about it. He, just like the tabernacle, everything about the Israelites while they were wandering in, in the wilderness pointed to Christ and to our salvation. And Moses especially was a picture of Christ. And was one of the reasons Jesus said, if you knew Moses, you would know me. Think about it. Moses, among all of his, all the Israelites, was the only one who was raised free. Right? Remember? He was raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. He was grandson of Pharaoh. But when he was grown, he chose of his own free will to renounce his royalty and become a brother with his Hebrew slaves, right? That speaks of Christ, doesn't it? He was sent by God to the Hebrews. Remember the burning bush? Okay, just like Christ was sent to us. And he was specifically sent to save them, to bring them out of bondage and into the blessing of God. And how did he demonstrate his calling? How did he prove that he was sent by God? with signs, wonders, and miracles. Remember we talked about that last week? And how did he save them? By leading them through water, through the Red Sea. In 1 Corinthians 10:2, Paul called that a baptism. He said the Israelites were baptized in Moses, just as we are baptized into Christ. So it was very intentional that Moses was like Christ. What did, what did Moses feed them with in the desert? Manna, bread from heaven. Whose bread from heaven? Christ. 
He fed them with water, living water from the rock. We think of him striking the rock and water comes out like Cecil B. DeMille. No, 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 no. Au contraire. It had to be enough water to feed 600,000 fighting men, their families, and all their livestock. We're talking about a river, okay, like Christ. And what did he give them? He gave them the old covenant, just like Christ gives us the new covenant. He gave them the promise. And in this old covenant, Moses' function was mediator between man and God, just as Christ is the mediator between us and God. And Moses built the tabernacle according to the pattern given him by God. And the tabernacle was the earthly dwelling place of God with man. And what has Christ built? He has built the tabernacle. Okay, He has made a place for God to dwell with us now. And we're going to look at some of the imagery of the tabernacle later when we get further on into, into uh, Hebrews. But no wonder, Jesus said, if they had believed Moses, they would believe him. They should have recognized him. So go on to number seven on the handout. What status does Christ hold in God's house? Well, he's, he's who? The son, right? Son of God. Okay, so let's review. Who's the servant? Moses. Who's the son and the heir? Jesus. So, who is greater? Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is worthy of greater honor than Moses. QED, as they say in math class. Okay. It's, he's walked them through bit by bit, very slowly and very delicately to the point that they have no, nothing else they can say except that Jesus is worthy of greater honor than Moses. Let's stop there for today because if I go any further, we're going to have to go another hour. <laughs> so 